Friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Monday, January 16th was Martin Luther King Day, and in this episode we will pay tribute to Dr. King by discussing his constitutional legacy. Joining us are the scholars Christopher Brooks and Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who are going to walk us through some of Dr. King's most important writings and speeches and talk about his intellectual influences. Professors Brooks and Jeffries are selecting the sources for the civil rights section of the Founders Library, and I'm so honored to welcome them to We the People today. Christopher Brooks is professor of history at East Stroudsburg University. His current research focuses on John S. Rock, the first African-American attorney admitted to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court. Professor Brooks, welcome back to We the People. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. And Hassan Kwame Jeffries is associate professor of history at Ohio State University. He's the author of Bloody Lounds, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt, which tells the remarkable story of the African-American freedom movement in Lowndes County, Alabama, which was the birthplace of black power. Professor Jeffries, it is an honor to welcome you back to We the People. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be back with you. We're going to focus our conversation on texts that each of you has, has selected. And we're going to begin with uh, Dr. King's address before the New York State Civil War Centennial Commission, which he delivered on September 12th, 1962. Professor Brooks, tell us about that speech and why you selected it. Well, I kind of selected it largely because it was something that was a little bit off the radar. In fact, it was discovered apparently kind of by accident by a staffer at the New York State Museum only 10 years ago. This speech was held at the Park Sheridan Hotel in Manhattan, and King spoke about 30 minutes. And during this speech, he articulates the significance of the Declaration of Independence and of the Emancipation Proclamation to the American fabric. In fact, he he even contended that these documents were sacred. Um, I think one thing, and maybe we'll get into this later on in discussion, This speech, like so many of his speeches, tend to do something I think that um, Frederick Douglass did pretty successfully in his 1852 uh, speech about the Constitution. was a constitution to the black men, to the Negro. And in that speech, it starts out articulating very clearly the problems, but it closes with kind of highlighting the fact that these words, these documents are aspirational. And that the argument there is that it was high time to live up to the words of the documents. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for focusing on this speech. I'm going to read a selection from it. And I hope we, the people listeners, will check it out as well on the resource page. History reveals that America has been a schizophrenic personality where these two documents are concerned. On the one hand, she's proudly professed the basic principles inherent in both documents. On the other She has sadly practiced the antithesis of those principles. Professor Jeffries, what can you tell us about this speech before the New York State Civil War Centennial Commission? Well, the idea of uh, America being schizophrenic uh, when it comes to its founding documents and uh, this idea of professing democracy uh, and yet not extending it uh, really, I think, speaks to 
what Professor Brooks was saying, uh, this idea that we must be clear that when King is talking about the Declaration of Independence, when he's talking about the Constitution, when he's talking about these founding documents, uh, he's not blinded to the reality that America has not lived up to the promise it put on words. I, I think in the contemporary moment, we have uh, a few too many people uh, who like to quote King and point to King, uh, celebrating um, you know, the, the, the profoundness of what was put down on paper and ignoring the fact uh, that he understood uh, that as a nation, we were still aspiring to get to the point uh, where we were giving full meaning to these words. So it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful selection because it really speaks to the truth about the past that King was talking about in the context of the present. Thank you so much for that. Another beat on this remarkable speech, it was delivered in 1962. It comes before the Birmingham jail letter, and it ends by quoting the persecution of the ancient Christians in Rome, and then there's something in the universe which justifies Carlyle in saying no lie can live forever, something in the universe which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying truth crushed to earth will rise again. And then he ends by saying we have a long way to go before it's solved, but all of us can think of the fact we made some strides. Tell us more, Professor Brooks, if you would, about what was going on when King delivered this speech, the context, and and something about his intellectual influences that led him to quote Carlyle and, and Bryan at the end of this speech. So the one thing about King is that he, I mean, he studied philosophy. So I think that sort of piece with respect to the intellectual sort of influences um, are clear. One of the um, major influences of King, kind of like a bedside book, something he traveled with, a book by Howard Thurman published in, I think it was uh, 1949, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited. Like King, Thurman recognized, I mean, he lived through segregation. I mean, in fact, Thurman, um, not to get away from King for too much, but we're going to talk about those who influenced him. Thurman was largely raised by his grandmother for the most part, because his mother was working to support the family. His father died when he was young, and his grandmother was a freed slave. So those who were chattel slavery, people who, African-Americans who want to do research on their family prior to 1865, they're looking at property records, not in genealogical uh, studies. Um, the fact that you know human beings were treated as property, and that this woman, this this uh, grandmother of Howard Thurman, likes millions of others, had been thought of as such. And then the next generation, so those who were living in the first half of the 20th century, Thurman's generation, King's generation, they witnessed Jim Crow firsthand. Horrible things, horrific things that. We can get into or not, maybe later. And then looking at these documents, looking at also their Christianity and what happened with Jesus. How was Jesus treated with his back against the wall to uh, borrow from um, Thurman? And that this moral sense always seems to rise within all of the speeches of King. And people going back to Thurman, I think that this may be why, like a book like Jesus and the Disinherited, might have been a major influence of somebody like Dr. King. So 
interesting and illuminating. And as you say, in the New York speech, Dr. King says, racial injustice must be uprooted from American society because it's morally wrong. It must be uprooted because it stands against all of the noble precepts of our Hebraic Christian heritage, because segregation substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship. There, obviously, a invocation of Martin Buber's famous I-thou relationship and the Thurman book, as you say, influenced King in the days leading up to the Montgomery boycott and and changed uh, history forever. Professor Jeffries, more about the influences on King and what's going on in 1962 uh, when he's delivering the speech. Yeah, well, I'm so glad Professor Brooks called the name of uh, Howard Thurman uh, because, you know, I I think too often um, we will quote King's sermons, we'll, we'll acknowledge him as a preacher, um, but we will ignore uh, the intellectual inheritance um, that 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 he is operating from, uh, and that is deeply rooted uh, in the Black church tradition, um, and not simply the, when we think about Black churches, we think of, we often get caught up, I think, in the um, theatrics of the church, right? The, 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 the emotion of the church. Um, but we don't pay close enough attention, I think, to the intellectual tradition that King was inheriting. Um, you know, his, his, his father's a, 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 a pastor, his grandfather's a pastor. Uh, he goes to uh, Morehouse College, uh, sits uh, at the feet of Benjamin Elijah Mays, sits at the feet uh, of a Howard Thurman, uh, and so he is inheriting uh, that uh, uh, religious, deeply spiritual, religious understanding of what the problems uh, of, uh, of of America are. Uh, and I'm so glad you shared that quote because he he fundamentally sees, and we should not be surprised about this. Although later in some of the speeches and texts, you know, it's King talking about labor and economics and war and the like, but he fundamentally sees. Uh, the problems that black folk face, the problem of racial discrimination, the problem of white supremacy as as a moral problem, as a moral failing. Certainly there are political implications. Certainly there are economic implications. But at the heart of it uh, is this moral failing, this moral deficit. And I think we really get we, 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 we can gain a better understanding of his critique of American society and global society as a whole if we connect his. Uh, intellectual um, roots uh, to this Black uh, Baptist, in particular, but Black theological tradition. It's so powerful to do that. And the words are just leaping out now that I'm reading the speech in, in light of what you're both suggesting. He says, the struggle for civil rights is rooted in moral values. As we pursue our goals everywhere, everyone will benefit from the moral awakening our movement compels. We must all maintain faith in the future and believe the American dream can and will become a reality. And he's criticizing the focus on a superhighway teeming with cars and building machines that think with, with, with needless luxuries and contrasting filling the planet with luxury or capable of destroying it totally with this imperative moral urgency. Well, that brings us to our second document. It's the famous letter from the Birmingham jail. This is April 16th, 1963, a year after the New York speech. Professor Brooks, tell us about what's going on in 1963, about the context for the letter for the Birmingham jail, and what aspects of this famous letter would you like to highlight? Wow. Um, So, yeah, this very question is um, 
Oof, you could write a book just, well, I think there is one uh, on this very issue. So the context is the nonviolent protests were starting to pick up and the reaction by the leadership in the city of Birmingham was simultaneously responding. And this happened, I mean, King was in jail more than once for peaceful protests. In any event, while there, there were some white ministers who were, you know, appalled at the immorality of him being imprisoned. And he responds with this letter. One thing that strikes me, and I, I thought it was very appropriate for the topic that we're discussing today. One, one thing that struck me about the letter was the concept of justice. So if, if we take, take a moment to think about the preamble of the Constitution, We, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish first justice. If you compare that to some of the wording in the letter from Birmingham jail, I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. So there needed to be, across the board, justice for all. And that was always my takeaway from this very, very famous letter. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Thank you for highlighting that language. After flagging justice there, he goes on to say, in any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustice exists, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. And then there's a remarkable invocation of St. Augustine, an unjust law is no law at all. And then to put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Professor Jeffries, your thoughts about this theme of justice, Augustine, Aquinas, and the letter for the Birmingham jail. Well, audience is is critically important, I think, when trying to make sense of anything that anybody is writing, but certainly uh, with Dr. King. And in this instance, as Professor Brooks rightly pointed out, this is a response. Certainly he's in jail but and so he's responding to sort of what's happening in the movement, but specifically he's responding to what you know would be called then white moderates. Right? These were the good white people in Alabama uh, who were critical of Dr. King because they said he was pushing too hard, too fast, just allow time to pass and things would improve. And they write this sort of op-ed that's published and that he's responding to. And they have a series of criticisms. And one of the criticisms that they level at Dr. King is that he's an outsider, that he has no place in Birmingham, Alabama. And so his response to that is like, no, no, no. Uh, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I have a right to be here. Uh, These are my people. Not only was I invited, but as an African-American, as an American, I am not an an outsider, right? I, I, I am touched by this, even if it is only indirect. So his response to, and I think this is this is King at his best, his response to this criticism that you have no business being here is like, no, 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 injustice is here. Going back to that theme of justice, injustice is here. Therefore, I have a duty and obligation to be here as well. And I would add that the, I think one of the things that is so powerful about Letter from Birmingham Jail that is off, that is different than uh, so many of the other things other 
um, King's speeches or or, or um, written pieces, is that this is his argument. Uh, not only the response and the critique of the criticism of him, but this is his argument for what to do about racial discrimination, what to do about injustice. And so his invocation of of St. Augustine, right, th- this idea of an unjust law is no law at all, is his justification, offering a justification for nonviolent civil disobedience. He says, we have a moral obligation uh, to put our bodies on the line uh, to contest to challenge these unjust laws. We are not duty-bound at all uh, to live in a society that uh, says that these are laws that we ought to abide by. Now, he also says, you got to be ready to suffer the punishment, right? He says, all right, if if, if this is an unjust law, but you have to go to jail as a result of it, then you got to go to jail. Uh, But he says that that should not keep us, that should not keep you uh, from 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 challenging or being afraid of challenging injustice. So I think part of the power of Letter from Birmingham Jail is that it, it, it makes this very powerful and compelling argument uh, for the use of civil disobedience, for embracing nonviolence to transform society. This was the weapon of the week that was his choice. You so powerfully call our attention to this Christian argument for civil disobedience. And indeed, Dr. King says he was initially disappointed at being called an extremist, but Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Was not Martin Luther an extremist and Bunyan? And Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Professor Brooks, tell us more about this this Christian theme of extremism on behalf of justice and civil disobedience. Well, I wanted to say something else, and maybe I can come to this Christian theme and civil disobedience, but kind of something ironic in a not so funny way, was the following year in 1964, when King is arrested, it's in St. Augustine, Florida. So him quoting St. Augustine, there's some really thick irony to that. But to the question, I think that if one looks at the example of Christian history, right, or the history of, you know, looking at the Bible and looking at all of the violence that Jesus suffered. That and, and I was actually funny. I was just having this conversation with somebody about how one can look at King as being Christ-like, mm-hmm. as somebody who knew his place in the world, his role before he passed. And and I want, I want to give you a concrete anecdotal that to, to, to illustrate this. One of my mentors, Charles Jones, who was a civil rights attorney in the late 60s, before he went on to teach law at Rutgers, recalled a meeting that he attended, and King was there, and he said, and I guess uh, Jack Greenberg was the head of the legal defense fund by that point, and King asked, well, what, what's the plan when I die, when they kill me? I remember when I first heard this story, my hairs on my arms stood up. I mean, this man knew he was going to die. Think about the conviction, the just sense of self and purpose one must have unarmed to say, I know this is going to happen, but the cause is greater than I. I just think that's magnificent. 
Wow, what extraordinary. Professor Jeffries, more thoughts on the Christian theme, on the letter from the Birmingham jail, and on this powerful suggestion of King as, as Christ-like. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, the context is so important. Uh, King is responding to nine or so white ministers, and he's saying that it's not enough for people within the body of Christ uh, to simply stand on the sidelines. So, I mean, so this is a religious appeal. And we shouldn't be surprised, of course, because of that intellectual and Christian tradition that he's tapping into. I'm actually reminded, uh, Professor Brooks, as you were talking, I'm reminded by uh, a, a, a random uh, sort of viral five or seven second clip that's been circulating this MLK Day, perhaps before, but I just saw it. And it's of a, a little young white girl. She can't be more than uh, four or five years old. Uh, and uh, there's a voice in the background, and, and she and has her on film, and it says, uh, uh, you know, what's today? And it's, it's a little white girl says, you know, it's Dr. King's birthday, it's MLK holiday. And, and, and then the voice says, well, who was, Do- you know, what did Dr. King do? Uh, and, and the little white girl says, uh, he died for our sins. Uh, and and then you hear the voice. Wow. Oh, wait a minute! No, 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 that's Jesus. Wow, wow. But so yeah, you get a little confusion there. But yeah. but it speaks. It, in fact, he did right. Now, now yeah. he doesn't have a Jesus complex, as we would. No, hear. no, I don't think either one of us are suggesting that he. No, didn't exactly, exactly. But the parallels to it, right? To make sure, like the parallels to what he was doing. I mean, he models his life after Christ in that sense. And what you're saying, that story is so powerful because, like, death was not a surprise to him. He, he, no. he, he did not want it, but he almost expected it. He lived with that threat, and yet he kept on. So those parallels wasn't flawless uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and, and he knew that. Uh, but those parallels to uh, that life of Christ as sacrifice for others to give up his life for the sins of us, Boy, that, 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 that's really striking. It is indeed. Absolutely remarkable. Well, the letter from a Birmingham jail was April 16th, 1963, and the I Have a Dream address on the Washington Mall was delivered on August 28th, 1963. Professor Brooks, tell us about I Have a Dream. Well, I think if you were to ask the average American on the street what speech is Martin Luther King most famous for, they would definitely speak of this very famous speech on the mall before tens of thousands of people. In this letter, King states that 100 years later, the Negro is still not free referring to, well, ultimately Jim Crow and the fact that the 15th Amendment securing the vote is being challenged by various states. When I say challenge, that's really, one could say that's an understatement. This speech, I, I think the end of it, the last sort of paragraph of it is probably the most famous. I'll just read it. Let freedom ring when this happens. And when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty. We are free at last. I think 
when he speaks of that freedom, he's not only speaking about blacks. I think that is, a, in my estimation, and perhaps you know, Professor Jeffries has a different take, um, this is a cry for freedom of everybody of true equality, an actual level playing field in the truest sense of the term. And I really think that, to me, that's the has always been the essence of this speech. So powerful. As you quote, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics can all sing free at last. And it is a messianic vision. He has a dream today, but it's a dream that one day all of God's children will be able to sing my country tis of thee. And also one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. Quoting from those beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah, also sung in Handel's Messiah. Professor Jeffries, your thoughts about the messianic Christian vision of equality in this glorious speech? Well, well, it's certainly there. I think Professor Brooks is spot on. And I think that is part of why um, the speech lives on uh, with us today. Uh, it, 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 you know, in the moment, it, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, people weren't walking home saying, oh, my goodness, you know, I have a dream, too. I mean, it was sort of uh, forgotten. Uh, until after his, uh, until after he's killed, uh, after his death. Um, but I, I think there's also an important component of what people have done with that. Uh, I think Professor Brooks has the, you, you have the right of it in terms of what he was saying. This is in a way aspirational. This is the end goal. This isn't just about a reflection of what the African-American freedom struggle was about. It was about sort of equality for everyone. Like, let's we're going to move everybody to a better place. And that's the only way everyone can fulfill their sort of human destiny. But that has been reimagined, reinterpreted, I think is a kind way of saying, bastardized, some would say, and taken to mean that King believe that that's where America was, right? Like, like, like we're to be this sort of colorblind society. I mean, we, we, we see so much of that, I think, today in, in, in those who would take not that snippet, uh, but rather, you know, slightly earlier in the speech where he talks about, um, you know, one day our children being judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Again, I think that that component as well is about one day, right? Let, let's get there. Let, let, let's do the mm-hmm. work to get there. I thought it was very telling, and you may have come across this in, in sort of the news. There was a, a newspaper out of Maine, uh, the Bangor uh, Daily, Daily News, and they had been over the years uh, running on MLK Day uh, the text of uh, I Have a Dream. Uh, but they have been over the years uh, editing it, taking out sections of the speech. And, 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 and so someone looked at it most recently and they were like, wait a minute. You took out the part about rabid racists, vicious racists. You took out the part uh, about um, uh, uh, reparations uh, and, and a bad check. Uh, you took out the part uh, about police brutality. And, and I think that's so important. King is dreaming because he's living in a nightmare and he's laying out what are the problems that black people are facing. 
So mm. the powerful, the power of the speech, I, I think, can only fully be appreciated, fully be appreciated. This, this, this aspirational goal of how we should be living, only if it's understood that we were so far from there, and we still are mm. far from there. Uh, and so I think the two pieces have to be together in order to appreciate fully the power of the speech. I think that the aspiration is is there because, well, it's an aspiration, which indicates you're not there. Um, <laughs> so um, I, anyone claiming otherwise kind of misses the definition of the word aspiration, I would think. And, and, and I think connected to that is also King is also race conscious. Right. I mean, so there's something very specific, yeah. right, about yes. you know his colorblindness. He's like, yeah, let's get there, right? Let, but we ain't there, and yeah. and this is where this the, was the dream. This, this was, was the dream. dream. This was the dream. Being <laughs> colorblind was the dream. It was the aspiration. Yep, and, 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 and probably should be. And I would agree. Let let's get there. But I think the 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 bad check, the reparation, what he's laying out, and we I think we see this in some of his latest speeches when he gets more specific. Is like the way to get there is not by ignoring race, like like not pretending as though race doesn't exist, not pretending as though racism isn't real and touched and touches the lives of people. In other words, we have to be race conscious in order to get to the place where race loses its power to create hierarchy and inequality. Well, this debate, this discussion, this conversation about the legacy of King is, of course, central today. Was King colorblind on the mall and became more race conscious, or was race consciousness a pervasive theme throughout his career? And much of this played out in his later speeches. The next speech that we're going to turn to is four years in the future, April 4th, 1967, beyond Vietnam, a time to break the silence. Uh, Professor Jeffries, you selected this speech, so why don't you introduce it? Yeah, so I think in setting up the April uh, 67 speech, I think it's important to, I, I'll go back and say, I would argue that King was always race conscious. It is very hard to grow up in Jim Crow America and not be race conscious. He, he, gives, a, he gives a very powerful sermon uh, in 1959 after, after um, Ghana, uh, it, uh, installs uh, Kwame Nkrumah uh, as president. He goes over there and he comes back and, you know, he's offering a different dream, right? He's like, man, he was like, we were, there were black pilots and black, he was like, this is, this is wonderful, right? I mean, so he, he understood, I think, the significance um, of sort of uh, racial solidarity, black solidarity. Um, but uh, he, he was saying that in itself is not enough. Right. I mean, because he also believed in these these real universals uh, about humankind. Uh, but he said we can't get to enjoy those universals as long as we continue to ignore the fact that race is being used uh, to oppress. And so understanding that, you know, it's not a surprise uh, for me uh, that when you get to April 4, 1967, one year before he's assassinated, uh, that beyond Vietnam speech, in, in which he's saying we have to come out as a nation, uh, as citizens of this nation, as global citizens, uh, against the Vietnam War, right? I mean, he, he, he's nonviolent. He said, I can't be nonviolent in individual practice uh, and not be uh, and be silent uh, when states engage in this kind of uh, a bloodshed. Uh, and so I think one of the powerful things of about that speech is there's, there's, there's no playing around, right? He's like, look, 
there's there's three really big problems that we got to deal with. Militarism. This is the Vietnam War. Um, uh, Capitalism. Right. Like this is this is also really a a long thread in his um, in his thinking over time. I mean, you know, one of the first public statements that King ever makes is while he's a child and he delivers this uh, oratorical address during the height of the Depression. And he's offering a critique of capitalism. Right. As a a 10 year old, 12 year old. And so this is you know, somebody who self-identifies as a democratic socialist. Uh, who, 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 you know, and and so I think that critique of capitalism and what he had to say uh, is what makes this that April Fourth speech so important. So the critique of the Vietnam War and violence, the critique of capitalism, and then the third piece, the critique of racism. Right? He's like, this is going to be our downfall. Um, and I mean, those three for King uh, are are, are kind of like the, the the triple evils that America has to has to wrestle with. Uh, and they can and they also cannot be separated. I'm going to read from the speech. A true revolution of values will look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation that will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterments of the countries and say, this is not just. Professor Brooks, Professor Jeffries says this critique of militarism, capitalism, and racism uh, stemmed back to when King was 10 uh, and, and, and represents his vision in, in 1967. Do you think this is consistent with the King of the I Have a Dream speech, or is it a new King? I wouldn't say it's a new King. I, I would agree. I want to go kind of connect the previous discussion with this one. I totally agree with Professor Jeffries. Uh, you know, I, I don't know personally know any African American who lived during that period who wasn't race or isn't race conscious. Uh, I would juxtaposing their lives to ours now, I think, becomes somewhat tenuous. It's not a one for one comparison. Um, on the other hand. Um, that doesn't mean that everything's rosy. The truth is in in the middle. Um, but as far as juxtaposing these two kings, as you might uh, say, I think it's the same person who's really razor focused on seeing uh, so many African Americans and poor whites. But he's not focused on that because um, different different sociological relationship, but he's seeing these young black kids, you know, 18, 19, 19 years old, being the average age of a Vietnam soldier, being sent off to war and being promised, you know, the moon and the stars. And yeah, you know what? Better, just to encapsulate it all, I distinctly remember this is probably this is from slightly after King's life, from around 1970 or 71. In the course of doing research, when I was in grad school, I came across a um, a uh, sort of an editorial comic, and there was a picture of a Vietnam soldier sitting down against a wall reading a letter, and at the top it said, "I hope 
you are fighting for freedom of us as well. So I think that that's kind of where King's going with this. Um, as for capitalism, I, I think we need to, I, I agree that King is definitely attacking capitalism, but it's capitalism as practiced, not capitalism as such. Uh, I think we need to make that distinction. So this is not the capitalism of the very moral and moral philosopher, Adam Smith, who, you know, scorned slavery. And I won't say he's a total egalitarian, granted, we're talking 1770s, but uh, certainly <laughs> he makes the argument in <clears throat> Wealth of Nations very clearly that uh, slavery is bad not only morally, but also economically because it stymies entrepreneurialism and growth. So it's not good for anybody. Um, that said, I think what King's looking at, the capitalism King is, is criticizing, is this sort of robber baron's capitalism, right? Um, and I, I think that that distinction should be made. Professor Jeffries, King is talking about why he became more aware of the capitalism and militarism. And he says over the last three summers, before 1967, he's been walking among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, told that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problem. And then he says that it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity of life in America can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can't be saved as long as it destroys the deepest hopes of the men over. Tell us more about the intellectual, political, and moral influences that led him to connect the struggle against militarism and capitalism with the struggle against racism. Well, King had always believed that by always, certainly during this movement period, this period of activism uh, from the 50s, uh, you know, Montgomery up until now, that if you do not change and, and if you do not allow space for nonviolent civil disobedience, for nonviolent protests, then the those who are most marginalized, if they don't have that outlet, they will take to the streets. They will resort to violence. He He, he writes about that. Uh, in letter from Birmingham jail, he's like, you better, you better do what I'm doing and support what I'm doing because the brothers in the street, including Malcolm, they, they, they got something different, right? And so I think this is consistent with what he's saying. He's like, I've, I've seen this. This is, this is not going to stop anytime soon. This, of course, 1967. You know, we're three years removed from, uh, two years removed from Watts, three years from Rochester, uh, Newark ha hasn't happened yet. We're going to have another bloody summer in, in summer '67. So this is a this is a period of um, urban uprisings and rebellions that are a result of both the the frustration of the slow pace of progress and change, uh, but also uh, things you know becoming worse, unemployment going up, deindustrialization, and the like. So he's he's fundamentally aware of you know outlets and 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 the need for for responding uh, to the crisis that people are facing. But he, but he does very much see it as linked right? because he goes on in that speech to say, look, why are we spending, you know, billions of dollars on this war in Vietnam, uh, money that is being diverted from uh, the war on poverty? Uh, we, we, we were, if we weren't quite there yet, we were starting to move in the right direction in terms of creating a social safety net to help people, lift people out of poverty. 
and we need to invest money and time and resources, the, 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 the riches of the wealthiest nation in the world, into that. And yet we are being diverted. We are being sidetracked um, by this war in Vietnam. So the problem with the war is both the, 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 the cost of lives to, as Professor Brooks said, you know, so the Doug brothers going over there um, and, and being sold a, a, a bad uh, bill, of, uh, bill of goods, uh, but also the, the loss of life uh, to the Vietnamese, uh, you know, and, and on that side as well. So he's just as much concerned about them, but also the, the, the fact that it shifts our priorities as a nation, moving us away from doing uh, the, 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 the outreach um, that needs to be done to help the most marginalized. This goes back to him and uh, understanding or recognizing that sort of that social gospel uh, and, and and a version of sort of Jesus interpret a version interpreting Jesus's life as being about helping the least among us, right? And he said that's where our focus ought to be, and this war is pulling us away from that. Mm. So powerful. Um, I, there, there's a strong Buddhist theme in this speech as well. He says. Uh, the great initiative in this war is ours, and this is the message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam, whom he quotes. And then he goes on to talk about uh, what he calls the, the powerful Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John, let us love one another for love is God. Professor Brooks, is, is there a shift from a Christian to a more ecumenical Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish theme here, or is this consistent with Dr. King's earlier writing? I really think there's there are definitely um, parallels. For example, with Mahatma Gandhi, I mean, these uh, it, it's inescapable. And ironically, Gandhi too died from an assassin's bullet. Interestingly, you know, as as uh, Professor Jeffries pointed out, if nonviolence is not given a path. Then, well, some sort of violent nationalist, uh, you know, reaction if people are oppressed enough or feel oppressed enough, even if they're not, they they have the sense that they are. Um, there will be a reaction. I mean, uh, Gandhi is assassinated by a, a Hindu nationalist. So, um, and if we look at Malcolm X. Uh, you know, well, we don't know for sure and all that, but the assumption has always been that he was killed by somebody who was far more radical than he had become um, as he changed towards the end of his life after his trip to Mecca. So, um, yeah, I, I do see parallels with other denominations. And it's sort of, and again, this is more less about the religiosity than it is about the morality. Right, it has far more to do with the the moral message of these various religions and uh, doctrines uh, about rising above, treating people with treating others with love, um, and eventually love would win. It doesn't mean that it has won. It just means that it was the best tool in the tool shed. Well, we come now to our final. Speech, Professor Jeffries, you've selected Where Are We Going? And it's 1967. Tell us about this important speech. So uh, really, it's, it, it's King's last book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or, or, or Community, which draws on you know, speeches that he had been making over time. And, and, and really, it's, 
it, it, it's too often over. I mean, scholars, of course, and activists have been reading this for so long, but it's one of those uh, parts of King's life uh, that gets skipped over, right? I mean, so we'll go from Selma to Memphis uh, and not look at those critical years in between in which he's talking about the Vietnam War, in which he's, he's talking about Black power. And so where do we go from here? Chaos or community is offering this question mark. He's like, look, we've made progress. Right? We have some fundamentals. We've gotten rid of segregation, uh, legal segregation. We've made significant progress and change, but we haven't gone far enough. Uh, there needs to be more. And he begins to outline things, right? Like what is the role of the government, for example, uh, that he says? He says government has to be involved in ending poverty, right? He, he advocates not for a minimum wage because he's talking about labor and economics in this moment. He's saying we need uh, a, a minimum income. Uh, as an example, and not just enough for people to get by, not just a social safety net income, an income that would allow people uh, to live uh, their their uh, their full lives, right? To 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 allow artists to be artists, right? To allow architects to be architects, to, for for people to tap into their humanity and their genius. And so, I, I really like to sit with um, uh, this 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 book, especially the last few chapters, because. I mean, he's talking about, you know, the role of government. He's talking about poverty. He's like, look, we got to get rid of poverty. How does poverty still exist in the nation as rich as this? And, and, and so it, it's, I think it's one of the, I mean, he certainly, his last chapter, he talks about the beloved community. So he comes back to the morality, to be sure, because he's all, that's the center. But in, in, the, in, in the pages in between, he really lays out, I think, some, a very practical analysis of of sort of society and its shortcomings, and offers, I think, some uh, some solutions or so, so possible solutions that you know were uh, not embraced then, that aren't embraced now, uh, but could really help uh, us going forward. Thanks for calling our attention to that crucial suggestion. In the treatment of poverty nationally, he says, one fact stands out. There are many white poor as Negro poor in the United States. Therefore, I will not dwell on the experience of poverty that derive from racial discrimination, but will discuss the poverty that affects white and Negro alike. I'm now convinced, as you said, Professor Jeffries, that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. Professor Brooks, tell us about this suggestion and the themes that we encounter in this final collection. Where are we going? Yeah, well, rightly, it was pointed out by Professor Jeffries that, uh, well, legally, you know, with the Congressional Acts of 64 and 65, the words of the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment sort of recodified and forced, but that doesn't mean that all the healing is done and all everything's solved. And I think that this turn to uh, looking at things through an economic as opposed to a racial lens. Um, and, you know, why is there any poverty, as uh, Professor Jeffries uh, pointed out? Why, why does that even exist? Um, yeah, I think King's looking at this and saying, well, you know, using, I think he used uh, Georgism or something as of having a single tax and, um, as a possible solution to this uh, problem. I, I, um, I honestly think that this is a logical conclusion to King's life and or life's work that he 
you know, had endured so much. And at the end, and again, this sort of, I use the expression Christ-like, again, as Christians, one aspires to be like Christ, even though we never will be Christ. Um, I think King came closer than most people I know. Uh, and he is then saying, okay, well, let's talk about actual equality for everybody. That's, you know, the, the poor whites, you know, they were, you know, they were also sold a bill of goods. You know, how do we join join forces here? Um, well, and that was uh, how he wanted to, I, I think may, maybe King's trying to pull people together, right? And to, again, his dream, colorblindness, acknowledging race exists, but knowing it's more of a sociological contract than anything else. And wanting to move away from it. Maybe the next step where we go from here is colorblindness and looking at things through an economic lens and not a racial one. Maybe this is the dream in him aspiring to have, you know, realize that dream in some sort of incremental step. Wow, that's such a powerful suggestion. And you invoke that verse from Matthew, be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. And as you say, that injunction to moral perfection was such a powerful theme in King's work. And of course, as you say, he exemplified it in his life. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. Professor Jeffries, when we convened last year uh, in honor of Dr. King's birthday and you were in conversation with Professor Allen, you were both debating, discussing about whether King evolved from colorblindness to race consciousness, from equality of opportunity to equality of result. In this conversation, I hear both of you saying that this theme of moral perfection, uh, rooted always in Christianity, but also in, in other traditions like Buddhism and, and, and Hinduism, was consistent throughout. Uh, how, how, how would you, what are your final thoughts on, on, on that question as we, as we bring all this together? I mean, King believed in humanity. Um, he, he was a Christian, uh, probably first, first and foremost, but he wasn't a Christian nationalist. Um, he believed in, you know, sort of, uh, and respected other people's uh, religious beliefs. Uh, he was a thinker. He was a philosopher. Uh, uh, he said, we're all going to get there. or you know, We're all going to wind up in the same place, although we may take different roads. Uh, and I think that is important. Uh, because he did not feel he had all the answers. And, and, and it was thinking about, you know, the end of his life in the midst of the Vietnam War. I don't think it's a surprise that in 67, he's talking about Hinduism. Uh, certainly the shout out to Mahatma Gandhi. He's talking about Buddhism because there was so much, de there was so many efforts to dehumanize um, the people who were uh, the enemy. And he's saying, no, we have to recognize people's humanity, right? The same way, that in the following year, uh, before he's assassinated, he's in Memphis, Tennessee, certainly all labor has dignity working with uh, black sanitation workers, but he's organizing through SCLC, the Poor People's Campaign, which is designed to bring poor people of all races and ethnicities to Washington to draw attention to the problem of poverty. So it's whites from Appalachia, it's black folk from the rural South, it's Native Americans from, from reservations, it's Latinos from the Southwest. And so he does have a, a universalist understanding of the problems that we face and the solutions. He's like, we're all in this together. I just need people to see it. 
But I do think he, but he's also, he's also a bit of a historian. He studies history. And so that I think that precludes him from sort of, from sort of walking through the world with blinders. Uh, he understands that race and racism is central to these problems that we're all facing. And that in order to get to the point, uh, going back to 63, to get to the point where we can uh, live in that beloved community, uh, that we can actually be colorblind, get past this thing uh, that is holding us back, this, this fiction called race, that we're going to have to have these notions of solidarity. Uh, and you know, he, he's like, black power? He's like, I get it. Uh, he's like, I wouldn't choose a slogan. It's going to scare white people. But I get it. I understand the need for this sort of racial solidarity. So I think he's there. Uh, but it's all together, right? I mean, the black power and, and black solidarity and race solidarity, racial solidarity and, and black nationalism coming up in Auburn Avenue, segregated Georgia, that can coexist with a universalist understanding of, of, of how we can and should interact as human beings in this world. Wonderful. Professor Brooks, last word in this great discussion is to you. Your uh, concluding thoughts in consistency and change in the inspiring moral vision of Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, yeah, the inspiring moral vision of Dr. King is overwhelming. Um, but I, I and, uh, and I'll return to it, but I wanted to say something uh, that I, I stumbled across in a, in a note uh, by a, a UCLA professor, um, McGee, Henry McGee. He said that although King was neither a lawyer nor a judge, he surely belongs in the pantheon of American constitutional giants. And I, I think that's a very powerful statement, um, and maybe it's a good one to close on, because you know we're, we've spent a good amount of time looking at King as a moral leader, as a social leader, as a social disruptor. <clears throat> but you know, his role in and maybe it's sort of a byproduct of everything he did to kind of force America to take a look at the founding documents, black letter textualist reading, as it were, and live up to it. I, I, I just, you know, I. You know, I, even Jack Greenberg had once commented back in the, he was before Congress. I think it was right before, right after King had passed in 1968. And he, and he talked about how um, King <clears throat> in his life helped determine the outer reaches and full potential of law in his time. And so I, th I think it's very powerful, you know, I, I think that most of us look at King solely as the, uh, the preacher with the, you know, who's marching and, you know, violence against him, but he does not waver. All of true. But the impact on law, I, I, I don't think we, you know, that cannot be underestimated. Wow. He, he forced America to take a look at the black letter text of the founding documents, as you just said, and to live up to it. What a, what a superb way of encapsulating the inspiring constitutional legacy of Dr. King. And thanks to both of you, Professor Brooks and Professor Jeffries, for forcing us to take a look at the black letter text of Dr. King's inspiring legacy and closely reading these, these canonical texts with us, selecting them for our Founders Library so that our 
great listeners and, and learners across America can continue to learn and grow from them for years to come. For a magnificent celebration of the constitutional and moral legacy of Dr. King, Professors Brooks and Jeffries, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Lana Ulrich and Bill Pollack. It was engineered by Dave Stotts and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sophia Gardell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a deep dive into primary texts and the elevating experience of a civil conversation. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the passion, the generosity, the engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, $5, $10 or more. To support our work, including the podcast, constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. Happy ML King Day, happy ML King Week, and on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.